of Andrew's lesson this morning is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 822. This is a very simple verse, but yet very powerful in its meaning and, and the guidance that it gives our lives. Listen carefully as we read Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What is required of me? What is expected of me? What do I have to do? Probably every single one of us has asked that question at one point or another in our lives. We may have sat in a classroom and raised our hand and asked the teacher, all right, what is expected of me in this class? I'm looking through the syllabus. What's going to be required of me? When am I going to have to turn these assignments in? And every teacher's favorite question Is this going to be on the test? Because if it's not going to be on the test, I'm not going to spend much time studying it. But if it's going to be on the test, I'm definitely going to make sure I know it. What is required of me? None of us would probably imagine entering into a job where we hadn't sat down with our employer and figured out what the job requirements were. What's expected of me? What does this job description entail? As we think about this question, it's obvious that this can be applied to the realm of faith. As well, What does God want from me? What does he expect of us? Here he's created us, he's placed us on earth, but what does he want us to do? And we're going to focus on that question this morning uh, for our time together as we study God's word. And we're going to be looking in one of the minor prophets, kind of tucked away in the Old Testament. And if you want to go ahead and be turning to the book of Micah, if you haven't already, I encourage you to do that. Be about page 822 in your pew Bibles. And if you want to be making your way there, let me encourage all of those who are visiting with us and let you know how excited we are to have you here. And we hope that we can be an encouragement to you and we hope you'll let us get to know you after service. We also have some of the postcards that you've seen up here and also in the foyer for our family day, which is coming up on Sunday, a week from today. And so if you're visiting with us, we hope you can come back for that special focus uh, we will have on God's plan for our family. Now, if you're looking at your Sunday morning bulletin, you may be a little bit confused. It's, it's not a typo there. Uh, we are going to be looking this morning at uh, a lesson I'd planned to present this evening. I got a call this morning. Uh, David, who had planned to be out of town this evening, uh, is not feeling well at all. And so uh, we need to continue to remember him uh, in, in our prayers and, and in our, our time this week. And so we're going to focus, if you'll just kind of bear with us today, we're going to focus on what's listed as tonight's lesson this morning. And then we're going to focus on what's listed this morning as we think about the atonement. We're going to study that tonight in our sermon time together. So if you've been to Bible class and you've been enjoying our fall focus and our class time has just whet your appetite to learn more about the atonement, you're going to have to come back tonight. So we hope that you can come back tonight to be a part of that. This morning we're going to be looking at this question. What does God want from me? What's required of me? You know, it's possible for us to go through the motions at work or at school and not really put our heart in it. It's possible for us to do our daily chores and our daily tasks without really thinking about the reason why we do those things. Since it is the fall, it is 
college football time, I couldn't resist using this as, uh, as kind of a helpful picture for us to wrap our minds around this concept. You may remember a couple of years ago when the national title game was played between Texas and USC. It was an exciting game. It was kind of back and forth. And finally, Texas pulls out a victory. They made several big plays that evening. But one of the pictures that was probably passed around the most after that game came after a a really big play as pictured right here. You can see the the Texas football players in the white and burnt orange there. They're celebrating. They're excited. And you know when you see the opposing team do well? You know if you're a fan of the team that that just got, got scored on or someone just, just really did well against your team, you feel down, don't you? You're almost in a state of shock and you don't know how to react. Well, that was the way most USC fans felt, even the cheerleaders, except for this one USC cheerleader here that's pictured in the background. You can see this big play that Texas has come up with. Every other cheerleader is silent, is trying to figure out what's going to happen next, except there's one of their cheerleaders who's in full cheering mode. I mean, she's into it. You know, she's celebrating, she's excited, and as you can imagine, what she's doing doesn't have much to do with what's taking place on the field. And obviously, there were a lot of people who forwarded this picture around and had a lot of fun at the uh, expense of a poor young lady who probably just didn't catch what took place on the field. But it does remind us that we can be cheering loudly for our team and totally miss the point of what's happening. Here she was, she was in the right place, with the right uniform, and the right squad, and the right sidelines, and yet had missed the point of what was taking place in the game. You know, it's possible for us to go through the motions and to completely miss the point of what we're doing. And Micah deals with that temptation that's not new to us, but it existed in the time of Israel. And so let's open up to Micah chapter 6. And I want you to imagine as we read these first few verses that you are in a courtroom, that you are here for a trial. In fact, you are sitting in the jury box. And you are going to hear a case presented to you as a member of the jury. But it's not going to be presented by just any prosecuting attorney. In fact, the Lord is going to present a case against his chosen people, the Israelites. And that's what we see taking place here in these first few verses. Terms like case and controversy are used over and over again. There's a lot of courtroom language, so let's listen beginning in verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. When you refer to the mountains or the hills, oftentimes in the Old Testament, that was another way of talking about the surrounding villages and the cities. So we get a picture here that God is saying, let everyone around you, let all the villages and cities around you take note, because the Lord is presenting a case before his people. And look at what he says in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. The Israelites face the same temptation we face today. And that is to look at our relationship with God as something that's burdensome. Something that wearies us. And I have to make sure I'm in attendance at worship services. And I have to make sure that I volunteer for this. And I have to make sure that I'm doing this in my life. And it's a burden. And it's wearisome. And that temptation isn't new to us. The Israelites face the same thing. And look at how God reacts. He says, how have I wearied you? Answer me. And he presents a case before the Israelites. And he gives us a little bit of a history lesson, which will be helpful as we understand this passage. First of all, he mentions how he delivered them. He says in verse 4, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you 
from the house of slavery. And when we read through the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites. They were working in the field, they were building storehouses, they were making bricks. It was backbreaking labor that taskmasters were constantly forcing them to do. Every minute of the day, you get a sense of taskmasters constantly being around them and putting them to work. Even when Moses comes and originally announces his intent before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gets wind of what's happening, then he makes the Israelites make those same amount of bricks without giving them any straw. And so you get a sense of the terrible, backbreaking labor taking place. God delivered them from that. And it seems to us that if God delivered us from slavery, we'd always remember that, right? But all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, God had to constantly remind His people that He delivered them out of slavery. How did they respond to that deliverance? Well, we don't go very far in reading about the history of Israel. When they get out in the wilderness and the food isn't exactly what they want, and they're thirsty, and they're tired, and uncomfortable, they begin to complain, even at times wishing they were back in Egypt. Rather than thinking about all the hard work they had to do, they're thinking about the food they used to have, and the land in which they used to dwell. They are longing for life in slavery, rather than wandering in the wilderness and being led by God. He delivered them, and yet at times they longed for a life before that deliverance. He also points out the fact that not only did he deliver them, but he led them. In verse 4, the latter half, he says, I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses leads the people out of Israel, and Aaron and Miriam play key roles in, in helping the Israelites through that time. Not only that, but God eventually will let Joshua lead them into the promised land. We'll see judges appointed Uh, prophets speaking the words of God. Even when Israel demands it, God lets them have a king. He he allows uh, Samuel to anoint a king. And so they have kings to rule over them. Each step of the way, God provides leadership. But how does Israel respond? Well, we can read through the book of Judges and get a very quick version of that answer. They respond by cycling back and forth. They'll follow God and then they'll fall away from God. And a judge will come up and they'll follow him again and then they'll fall away from God. And that cycle repeats itself throughout Israel's history. God delivered them. He led them. And then he refers to a story with which we might not be quite as familiar in verse 5. He says, My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. God refers to the way in which he protected Israel. And when we read about Balak and Balaam, it's a story that's tucked away there in Numbers chapter 22. And there are a few chapters there where we read this story in which Balak, the king of Moab, becomes very concerned about the Israelites. And he sends a convoy of messengers to ask Balaam if Balaam will pronounce a curse against the Israelites. Balaam says no. Balak doesn't take no for an answer. He sends another group. Finally, Balaam Balaam does come to Balak. And rather than curse Israel, he winds up blessing Israel. You see, God is working through all of this. And three times, rather than curse Israel, he blesses them. And God points out the fact that he was protecting them. And it's ironic what happens immediately after we read about that story in Numbers 22 and 23 and 24. The very first part of Numbers 25 tells us in the words of the writer that Israel played the harlot with Moab. In other words, the Israelites went in with the Moabites. They began worshiping Baal. They began being involved in pagan worship. Here God had protected them from the king of Moab and yet Israel responds by turning around and walking right into false idol worship, right into a sinful lifestyle. 
right into a relationship that God never would have intended. Not only did he protect them in that way, but the latter half of verse 5 talks about their entrance into Gilgal when God miraculously parted the waters of the Jordan River and they were able to head into the Gilgal area preparing for the battle of Jericho. God protected them in that case. And when they followed his instructions, like in the battle of Jericho, things went well for them. But just ask a man named Achan just a few verses later as he did not follow God's instructions. And because of that, there were Israelite soldiers that died. His family died. We get the sense that Israel would follow God's guidance and appreciate his protection for a time, but it was always a temptation to turn away from it. And as we read these first five verses, if you're sitting in the jury box, what would be your verdict? This is a pretty airtight case, isn't it? We have step by step all the different ways in which Israel had failed God. And if you're sitting in the jury box with me, you probably have that same response that I would have, which is they're guilty. But before I can point my finger at Israel, I need to ask myself this question. Does God have a case against me? Could God make that same case against me in my life? After all, as Christians, haven't we been delivered? Haven't we been delivered out of slavery? Paul would say in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 that we were delivered because we were slaves to sin and we became obedient. So once I become obedient to God and His will, once I put Christ on in baptism, I'm delivered out of that slavery. And yet aren't there times when we're tempted like the Israelites to think back to what it was like in slavery? To long for some of those times? We think back to places we used to go before we were Christians and activities we used to really enjoy, people we spent a lot of time around, and and the things we did with those people, and that was really enjoyable, and we almost sort of long for those times. Maybe it's it's an activity we used to really like, uh, and we put that away when we become Christians, because not only we wanted to serve God, we wanted to be the right kind of example, and yet Satan tempts us by constantly reminding us And it's like the Israelites in the sense when they thought back of the slavery, they were thinking of the food and the land in which they lived. It doesn't appear that they remembered all the back-breaking labor that went into being a slave. They seem to have that selective memory. And Satan can use that trick on us as well. Thinking about all the good times we experienced before coming Christian, leaving out the death and destruction that sin can cause. See, God's delivered us, and he leads us, doesn't he? He's given us his word. Hasn't he? His inspired word, that that lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And yet sometimes our lives can mirror the lives of Israel in that we follow God's leadership and then we might cycle over here and spend a time where we don't. And we come back to God's leadership and then we cycle over here and spend a time that we don't. And we begin, the more we think about it, to see some similarities between our lives and the lives of Israel. We might not have the same historical situation But there are many ways in which we can put our names in place of Israel in this passage and see that God has a case against us. One of the ways that we can see ourselves kind of mirroring that activity of the Israelites is thinking about God's protection. Now, we don't know uh, what all takes place in the heavenly realm. I, I think often of the book of Job as God and Satan are having a discussion and Job has no idea what's taking place. And while all these terrible things are happening, God is protecting Job's life. And so you get a sense that Job is being protected, at least his life is, as he's suffering terribly, and he doesn't even realize it. I wonder if there aren't times that God protects us or provides us blessings that we don't even realize. Almost like as Balaam was called before 
uh, Balak and he, he was given that command to curse Israel and yet God works out that situation and makes it a blessing. I wonder if there aren't ways things like that happen that we don't even know about and yet because of our desire to be a part of what the world is into, because of our desire to do what the world would have us to do, we might walk right back into those temptations or those situations from which God has spared us, maybe from which God has provided us a way out. We might turn around and walk right back in those temptations. And we know that's true with the blood of His Son, Jesus, who's there to forgive us of our sins. We know how many times we've experienced that protection, that forgiveness, and then turned right back around and engaged in activities God wouldn't want us to be any part of. So if I'm sitting in the jury box, I have to realize God has an airtight case against me as well. And just imagine, back in this courtroom, if you heard this evidence presented, and then what if, and this would be very irregular for courtroom proceedings, but what if the defendants stood up, and one of the defendants said, we realize we're guilty, but if it's okay with the court, we'd like to come up with our own sentence. We'd like to find a way to provide our own, our own penance. Here's what we have to offer for what we've done. That's what we see in the next couple of verses here in Micah chapter 6. Verse 6 reads, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here we have the solutions that an Israelite might come up with. And we see them listed out. We have more burnt offerings? Would that be the answer for all of these sins that have been committed? Should I offer more burnt offerings? It's interesting in looking through Israelite history that Solomon, when he became king in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 4, he did offer a thousand burnt offerings as a part of his becoming king. And just a few chapters later in 1 Kings 8 and verse 5, we read that as the ark comes into the temple, that there were so many sheep and oxen that were offered that they couldn't even be numbered. And so an Israelite might think, should I make that level of sacrifice? Should I make a Solomon level of sacrifice with a thousand burnt offerings or with countless animals? Is it possible for me to offer more rams and, and thousands of rivers of oil? Remember, rams were used for, for guilt offerings, for when someone sinned before the Lord. So is it possible that I could come up with enough offerings for my guilt and my sin that I could make up for everything that has taken place? Could it be that I need to give my firstborn. Offering children was something that was very common in pagan rituals. And even when we read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, we see that God called Abraham to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. And it wasn't until Abraham proved his faith by showing he was going to do that that God delivered both of them from that situation. And so you can imagine someone coming up with these solutions, uh, saying, maybe if I just offered more, maybe more rams and, and rivers of oil, even offering my firstborn, will that get the job done? And if we're sitting in a jury box, and we've heard the case, and we're seeing the solutions being offered, we might think, well, there's no way that could make up for everything that's taken place. But before I think too hard about that, I need to ask myself, what are my solutions when I realize my guilt. Isn't it tempting sometimes to think, well, I realize I'm guilty, I realize what I've done, so I'm just going to fill in the blank. I'm just going to be sure I'm here in attendance at worship more and, and making it to more gospel meetings. Maybe I should just raise my contribution. Or maybe volunteer more. Maybe do good work in the community. 
Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with any of that. In fact, we're commanded to worship together. We're commanded to give and to serve in the community. But the point God is making here is something I hope that we can leave this morning with an understanding in our hearts. And that is the outward acts of service by themselves are not enough. They must be joined with an inward life of devotion to God. Just as was the case with Israel, it's the case with us. Not only did God want those sacrifices, remember, under the Old Covenant, He commanded those sacrifices. So God's not speaking out against burnt offerings and saying those aren't good, but those by themselves must, aren't enough. They must be accompanied with that inward life. Just going through the motions without really being engaged in what's taking place, just walking through the outer acts of, of worship and glory to God, that's not enough. I have to have an inward life, uh, an inward morality that's devoted to God. And Micah shows us how both of those are necessary. And that's always been God's plan. To have both. Both the outward and the inward. God uses another one of the minor prophets to make that same point. In Hosea 6 and verse 6. And actually Jesus in the New Testament would refer back to this statement. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's not that he was saying that he didn't appreciate sacrifice and burnt offerings, but they were empty if there wasn't mercy, if there wasn't kindness, if there wasn't a true knowledge and relationship with God there. The same is true for us. Let's make sure that we're not coming up with solutions that focus only on the outward. Outward acts of worship are important. God's commanded them. But that inward life, that that inward devotion to God, that life that lives Monday through Saturday glorifying God is necessary as well. And that's always been a part of God's plan. Micah reminds the Israelites of that, and it's important for us to be reminded of that as well. And if we walk back into the courtroom, and we see these solutions that have been offered, what if you heard this simple solution, a simple but powerful one, that God offers here in verse 8? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here was God's solution. It wasn't one that did away with all of the sacrifices that needed to be maintained under the Old Covenant. In fact, it's very similar to when Jesus describes the greatest commands and He describes loving God with all your heart and then He also describes loving your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't that you should do those and exclude everything else. He was getting across the point, if you do those, you will follow everything else because on these hang all the law and the prophets. The same is true with this passage. Rabbis often called this a one-sentence summary of the law. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And for just a moment this morning, I'd like for us to think about what that means in our lives. Doing justice. Later on in this book, even in chapter 7, God will talk about dishonest scales, about those who lie, those who deal dishonestly with other people. If I want to do, do justice, if I want to live justly, then I need to be leading an upright and honest life. Not out to deceive people. And so when it comes time for me to file an expense report and I've got to turn something into my employer and I'm very tempted to throw in some expenses that aren't really business related that I shouldn't really be getting reimbursed for, it might be tempting for me to do that and yet God calls me to do justice. 
And when I didn't realize that we had a homework assignment due today and everyone else in the class thinks that it's okay just to copy someone else's answers because after all, it's not really going to be counted as a grade and the teacher probably even won't notice and everybody else around me is doing that and if everybody else is doing it, then it has to be okay. God calls me to do justice, to live an upright and honest life. Not only that, but God calls us to love mercy. Mercy is a very rich term, sometimes translated kindness or or loving kindness maybe in your translation. And if we think about the difference between justice and mercy, perhaps the best description is the old joke about a man who had his picture taken and he went to the photographer afterwards and he looked at his picture and this man was proud of the way he looked and he said, you know, this picture really doesn't do me justice. And the photographer looked at him and he said, I've seen your face. Trust me, you don't need justice. You need mercy. When we think about the relationship between justice and mercy, that helps us understand justice is what we deserve. If I'm dealing righteously with someone else, I'm holding up God's standard. And yet mercy is the kindness that God has shown toward us and that he calls us to show toward other people. And so when that family member comes to me, you know the one who said those things that, that are etched in my memory that I've, that I've held with me for years, when he, he finally comes to me and apologizes... God calls me to love mercy and kindness and forgive that person. And when there's a friend who's treated me terribly that comes to me and asks for forgiveness, God calls me to to love mercy, to show the same mercy he's shown me. And lastly, to walk humbly. Peter would say the same thing in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We live in a world of people who want to lift themselves up. And yet the only key to truly being exalted is humbling ourselves here and allowing ourselves to be exalted and living in eternity with heaven in the life to come. If I truly understand justice, I'll understand what I deserve as a sinner. It's hard to miss as we study the cross. It's hard to miss the fate that every single one of us deserves as a sinner that's separated from God. But what's also impossible to miss is the mercy God shows us at the cross. And that we can take advantage of that sacrifice. We can understand what justice requires, but that God is the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We know what mercy has made possible. And once we understand that, once I I accept that mercy and submit my will to God's, once not only do I turn my life around, but I confess his name, and I decide I'm going to live my entire life following him, I put him on in baptism, and I begin that walk. Once I'm at that point... I realize what I deserved. I realize what I've been given. I'm going to walk humbly. And I'm going to understand anytime I'm tempted to take credit for anything good in my life, that it didn't come from me, it came from God. It's possible for us to go through the motions. It's possible for us even this morning to come to worship together, to sing the songs, to bow our heads when we pray, to take the Lord's Supper, to put something in the contribution plate, and even to sit politely and listen to the sermon. It's possible for us to go through all those motions and yet not have that inward devotion, that inward sincerity of following God. It's possible to do that, but it's not God's plan. It wasn't God's plan for Israel, and it's not God's plan for us. So this morning, let's realize that the outward acts are, are important and the inward acts are equally important. Let's have an inward devotion to God that shows itself in the way we look on the outside. Let's not try to keep up appearances. Let's try to keep up our personal life, our walk, our relationship with God. And the appearances, the outward acts of sacrifice will all take care of themselves.
God here is talking to his people in Micah, and by application, talking to his people today. If you want to be a part of God's people, if you want to be a member of his family, that justice, mercy, and humility is the way to do it. Understanding that the justice we all deserve is death. Sin brings with it death, separation from God. And yet because of God's mercy, Jesus' sacrifice, we can become Christians, we can walk in a new life in where we are humbly serving our Lord. If you'd like to make that decision, if you'd like to become a part of God's people, or if you're one of God's people, and something in the text that we've studied this morning has has really struck home and it's, it's pricked your heart. If there's anything that we can do to help you, please come and make your needs known as we stand and sing together.